Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. So what I want to do today is um, uh, kind of, because we're at the start of the series, take a little bit longer to recap some of the things we touched on last week because we were setting up the series, and then we're going to get into some of the things that we can learn from Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, on the surface, I mentioned this last week, but on the surface, the book of Nehemiah is about a, a rebuilding project. Uh, Nehemiah, who was an Israelite born into captivity, born into exile, uh, in, uh, uh, into the nation of uh, Persia, um, God used him, God called him, God stirred his heart to eventually lead a group of Israelites back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city walls. Old Testament walls were particularly important. I, I guess it's not something that we're perhaps familiar with today, but Old Testament walls that surrounded a city were particularly important. They were instrumental in ensuring that the city and its citizens would prosper. Um, there's actually a verse in uh, Proverbs 25 that says this, a person who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls are broken. The city walls were the city's first line of defense. So whether it's a person who lacks self-control, or a city that doesn't have established walls, both are open to outside influences. Both were open to the attack of the enemy. But Jerusalem's broken walls were not so much about the physical issue that they were facing. This wasn't so much about a physical rebuilding project. Those broken walls represented Israel's broken relationship with God. So this rebuilding project that Nehemiah is about to start was not so much a physical rebuilding project, but actually was about a spiritual rebuilding project. It was, it was, it was, this man was connecting, helping to reconnect God's people back to himself. Now, I know many of us here, hopefully, would not uh, uh, use the metaphor of broken city walls, hopefully, to describe our relationship with God. And certainly as a church, I would not in any way describe our relationship with God as a church uh, through the analogy of broken walls. But I want to say, as a church, we are going through the midst of a spiritual and physical building project. And that's why this book is so, so powerful. Remember, just for a moment, that prophetic word that I keep referring us back to, but I'm going to do it probably week after week, that prophetic word we got in October of, of God showing us a picture of foundations being laid, but nothing being built above ground, and, and God in this prophetic picture giving us a brick and saying these words, today you begin to build above ground, the sense of a spiritual rebuilding project of Jesus building his church. We've just spent the last 10 or 12 weeks looking at our vision framework, kind of summarized by the banner statement, all of Jesus for everyone. And I hope your heart is just like mine, wanting to see that banner statement transform from just concept and teaching to, to um, the power of God living in us and through us, and, and that we can begin to see all of Jesus for everyone become a reality. And I mentioned last week, and we've mentioned before, not only is that does that describe the spiritual rebuilding project? But we're in the midst of petitioning the aldermen and the city zoning commission to, to change a zoning variance at 4216 West Belmont so that hopefully we can start a physical building project at what will hopefully become our new home. And then, of course, I'm, I mentioned this last week, Ken Grenfell's amazing ministry two weeks ago where, where he spoke what he believed God's heart to us was, which is get ready to, to cross over into the promises that God has for you as a church. 
And so in all of this kind of sense, there is this, there is this identification with this, with this spiritual and physical rebuilding project that God is doing in our midst right now. How many Lord of the Rings fans do we have among us? Show of hands. Okay, fair, fair amount of you. So, so to the uninformed like me, uh, and I'm sorry to offend people with that statement right off the bat, but to the uninformed like me, the Lord of the Rings is a pretty cool adventure about a hairy-toed hobbit called Frodo Baggins. And that's kind of like the very surface level of what the Lord of the Rings is all about. But to the informed, to those who raise their hand, you will know that the story is, is so much more than that. It's not just about Frodo Baggins' adventure, but it's about the survival of the, 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 the hobbits and the dwarves, dwarves and the elves and the, and, the, and the men from, is it Rohan and Gondor? Is that right? Did I get that right? Anyway, you kind of, you kind of get the picture. So it's, 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 it's not just the story of Frodo Baggins, but it's about these various civilizations. And, and even at a greater level, the Lord of the Rings is about ultimate good versus evil and the survival of civilization all around the reality of this, this one ring that needs to be destroyed. I bought these Starbucks cups uh, to kind of illustrate that point. So on one level, the Lord of the Rings is about Frodo Baggins. But Frodo Baggins' story fits into this Grande Cup, which represents the reality that the story of the Lord of the Rings is actually about the survival of these various civilizations. But both of those stories fit into the ultimate story of what the Lord of the Rings is about, which is the survival of civilization and good versus evil. To some extent, that's what the Bible teaches, and that's the the application and the teaching of Scripture applies to us at these three different levels. At one level, the teaching of Scripture is, is very personal. What is God saying to me? What is God doing in my life? But at a whole nother level, God is speaking to you in the context of the community of which you are a part. So the questions I'm asking myself about what God is saying to me fits into the reality of the community of which I'm a part. And generally, that application finds itself in the local church. But thirdly, those two levels of of the application of Scripture fit into the ultimate story that stretches from Genesis to Revelation, which is God redeeming people back to himself. The ultimate uh, exiles to heirs story. The Nehemiah story that we are about is so much uh, uh, this particular understanding. We as a local church, I've just mentioned are in the midst of a spiritual and physical rebuilding project. And our story as a local church fits very much into the reality of what God's doing, not just in the city, but across the nations and across generations, bringing people back to himself. But the question we started to ask last week is, how does Nehemiah apply to me? What is Nehemiah's, what is the application of Nehemiah to to me as an individual, and how does that fit into the context of the different layers. And the way we answered that question is by asking, what is God building in you and building through you? What is God building in you and building through you? And we started looking at this idea of vision, one's one's ultimate aspiration. The, 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 The vision defines movement and mission towards this desired future. Vision is not so much what could be done, But vision is about what should be done, what needs to be done. But vision doesn't start with movement and momentum and mission towards this desired future. Vision starts with this, a sense of 
brokenheartedness, a sense of burden, a sense of dissatisfaction or, or, or inner turmoil with the, with the reality of the status quo around you in the light of the preferred future that you want to see in, in, in your world or, or, or in the community around you. For Nehemiah, this, this brokenheartedness, this vision that, that was burning in his heart, this burden that he was carrying was a consequence of the, the broken political and social, but more importantly, the broken spiritual relationship that Jerusalem had with God and its people being scattered. So the question we asked last week is, what breaks your heart? What is it about the set of circumstances around you that, that burdens you? James mentioned the flyer that we are handing out each week, and, and there were three questions last week that we, that we asked, and the first one was simply that, what breaks your heart? We're going to see in a few moments as we read through Nehemiah chapter 1 that Nehemiah was probably the most unlikely person to, to lead this return of the, of the Israelites back to the city of Jerusalem. He ends off at, 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 in chapter 1 with the statement, I was cupbearer to the king. And I think so often we can read that particular verse as, woe is me, I was a lowly cupbearer to the king. But, but I honestly think Nehemiah's statement of I was a cupbearer to the king was a statement of courage and a statement of conviction and a statement of faith. I was cupbearer to the king. I know that my God in heaven has strategically placed me in the courts of the king for a time such as this. That although I have favor with an earthly king, my greater favor rests with the king of kings. And that brought us to the second question that we asked last week is simply this. Where has God uniquely and specifically placed you? Where, what is the sphere of influence and impact that is new to you? And the third question kind of built off of that because of our tendency to so often write ourselves off. If you're anything like me, often we, 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 we tend to come up with excuses or reasons why God couldn't use us rather than a statement of faith and boldness, believing that God could use us. And so the question we asked last week is simply this, have, how have you limited yourself and what excuses have you come up with to defend your conviction or belief that God can't or won't use you? And those are important questions to ask and answer because God's positioning where you are, the, the specific location in which you are in, the specific school or business or community in which you've been placed is God's endorsement that he wants to use you powerfully to impact the people around you. God's grace is on you for the people that are specifically around you. God wants us to be salt and light to those around us. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. And I love that encouragement from Jesus because he's not asking us to be something that we're not. He's not saying be more salty. He's not saying be a shine brighter or, or, or be positioned higher on the hill. He's simply saying be who you are in me. Be salt, be light, and be a city on a hill. Can I just say for a moment, just to kind of step away from the Nehemiah series for literally two minutes and say this, James mentioned that we are in the process of considering a name change for our church, but I want us not to forget the reason why we called ourselves church in the city in the beginning. 
Unbeknown to us, we were part of a, of a first wave of, of churches being planted in the city again to establish this idea of a city on a hill, salt of the earth and light to the world, to show this, this city what it looks like when Jesus is king. And so that statement of we are church in the city was a declaration of God planting us here to impact the spheres of influence around us. No matter what we call ourselves in the future, I don't want us to forget that heart. We, here for the, we are here for the benefit of the city, not for our own benefit. So there's three questions really quickly again from last week before we get on to stuff for this week. What breaks your heart? Where has God uniquely and specifically placed you right now? And what excuses have you used to defend your conviction that God isn't or won't be able to use you? And I want to encourage you, take time to ponder these questions. You will get the most out of this series, the next 13 weeks, as you take those questions that that will come to you in the flyer, they'll be posted online, on social media in the week. Take those questions, consider them, ponder them, pray through them, discuss them with your friends, your, your family, in your connect groups. That's the best way that we are going to learn and benefit from this particular series. So with that in mind, let's read Nehemiah chapter 1 together, and we'll make a few comments along the way. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So just to quickly set some context, Susa was a Persian city where, um, as it turns out, Persian kings used to spend the winters in this particular city. And remember, Judah... Had, was the two southern tribes that had split off from the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, through some bad leadership, had split into ten northern tribes and two southern tribes. And because of, of hard-heartedness and rebellion over generation after generation, God had allowed both the northern tribes and the two southern tribes to, to be taken into exile, initially by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians, and that's where Nehemiah finds himself born into the Persian Empire as an Israelite. Let's carry on from verse 2. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Each week, not only are we asking two or three pertinent, kind of searching, probing questions for you to consider, but we're also going to be learning things about how to discover God's plan, God's vision, God's purpose for your life. And last week, we we looked at two particular pillars or truths around this idea of vision. I've already mentioned perhaps the first one, and that was this, vision starts with a burden or a concern. And the second one that we learned last week was this. Vision hardly ever requires immediate action. Vision hardly ever requires immediate action. Look at verse 4 with me again. As soon as I heard these words, this is Nehemiah speaking. As soon as I heard these words, as I realized the, the state of the nation that I love and the, and the, and the people, it, its citizens, I, I sat down and I wept 
and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying. It actually, as we will see later, it turns out to be four months that Nehemiah weeps and prays. There's a four-month break between Nehemiah chapter 1 and before he actually does anything in Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, um, as soon as I heard these words, I, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, now verse 4 should prompt or, or cause some questions to be stirred in our hearts. Remember, Nehemiah had never seen the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was born into the Persian Empire. Nehemiah lived in, in the opulence and wealth of the of the courts of the king. He was in a prominent position. It sounds like, to, to you and I, the cupbearer to the king sounds like a lowly servant, but it was a fairly prominent position. He was living in wealth and prosperity. He was, he was 800 miles away from Jerusalem, and the walls had been broken down about 140 years earlier. He had heard about the walls being broken down before. The best analogy that I can think of is, is simply this. You and I, finding out or being reminded of the fact that 140 years ago, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And all of a sudden, we fall to the ground, burdened with God's, God's broken heart for the nation because we are concerned of the consequences that will come to our nation because of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. That's essentially what is happening here. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, what was happening? Why was he so brokenhearted and so burdened? And the only answer that I can think of, well, and I believe this to be true, is he got a taste of God's broken heart for his people. He had a, he had a sliver of understanding of, of, of what it means to be burdened and brokenhearted for the people of God, as God is for his people. There's that song that we sing by, by Hillsong, Hosanna, break my heart for what breaks yours. I have a confession to make. I've been singing that song for how long? I don't know, 10 years maybe. That song makes, that line makes me nervous. Break my heart for what breaks yours. That's a very easy statement to make. Think about if God broke our heart with what breaks his. I think God, by his grace, doesn't allow us to experience the fullness of his broken heart. He gives us a taste. He gives us a sliver of understanding what that is like. That's what burdened Nehemiah's heart. And why did he respond the way that he did? Why did he immediately begin to pray? Because he knew no other way to respond. You see, prayer for Nehemiah wasn't just a box that, we, that he checked or, or something that Christians do when you don't know what else to do. And I think sometimes that's how we've reduced prayer. You know, when someone comes to us with a difficult situation or a set of circumstances and we, and we, we talk with them and, and we try to suggest various things and we come to the end of the conversation and we realize that nothing's really stuck and so we say this, well, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to do. I, I'll, I'll pray for you. Like, forgive me for not coming up with a better answer. I think what I can resort to perhaps is to pray for you. And I'm, I would suggest that shouldn't be our response. Our response should be the first, the greatest, the most important thing, the most powerful thing, the most valuable thing that we can do for people is to offer to pray with them and to pray for them. And so when people come to us and share a burden or we are burdened by a situation of our city, our first response needs to be, Lord, I'm going to pray. Or to the person, I'm committed to pray with you until you find breakthrough and resolution in this particular issue. 
You see, for Nehemiah, prayer was natural, prayer was immediate, and prayer was spontaneous. We're going to read in the, in the coming weeks, this is one of nine prayers that are recorded in, sh- in, a short, uh, in, in this particular book, short 13 chapters. Nine prayers that are recorded, and Nehemiah persisted in prayer. As I mentioned earlier, there are four months between Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2. He persisted and prayed and fasted until God began to answer his prayers. Nehemiah was a a person of prayer. And when you are a person of prayer, when you learn to trust in the Lord, when you learn to be still before the Lord, when you learn to commit your way to the Lord, when you learn to take delight in the, in the Lord, as Psalm 37 tells us, and, and for, for some reason, week after week, I keep going back to Psalm 37. When, when, when we are a person of prayer, God gives you the desires of, of your heart because you, His heart starts to reflect in your heart. When you abide in God, you begin to move with God, or perhaps more, more to the point in this, sake, in this case, God begins to move you. God begins to move your heart. God begins to move your heart away from the, 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 the radical individualism that defines our culture towards an understanding of God's prosperity and favor, which is actually to be more burdened about others than it is to be burdened about yourself. When God's heart becomes my heart, when, when I abide in God and move with God, I begin to realize it's not all about me. I want to share a couple of verses that emphasize this reality of God's view of human flourishing and human prosperity actually being about concern for one another. Listen to Zechariah chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Now, some of you are sitting there and thinking, well, that's great. That's the Old Testament. Okay, so let's jump to Matthew chapter 7. How about this? The words of Jesus. So in everything, in everything, in everything, I don't know how else to emphasize that, in everything, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And again, some of you might be saying, well, it still references the Old Testament, so let me give you a third verse for you to consider. Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Remember those two points I shared about vision? The first one being that vision starts with a burden or a concern. Can I suggest that if we are to catch God's heart, God's burden, the burden is actually not about us or our church. The burden is about the people around us. How can we, how can we minister God's love to those that are around us? The burden or concern that we should be carrying are for those that don't know Jesus yet or those that, or those that do know Jesus but are in a state of, 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 of disrepair or not in close relationship with Him. And the second point that I made is vision hardly ever requires immediate action. And the reason for that is, is because God wants us to catch His heart. And the main way that we catch God's heart is through prayer. 
is through spending time with God in His presence, reading His Word. When we abide in God, we begin to move with God. As a friend of mine once famously said, we are created as human beings, not human doings. And I know that is the corniest thing I've probably ever said from this, from this pulpit, but honestly, it rings true. We are human beings, not human doings. So the question I want to ask and answer today is, is how do I ensure that this vision for my life, God's purpose for my life, is not centered around me? How do, I, how do I grow in empathy towards others and the world around me? How do I allow the compassion of Christ to overflow in me towards others? Let's carry on reading verse 5. And I said, this is the prayer of Nehemiah, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the are in the uttermost parts of, of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. How do we grow in empathy towards others? How do we allow the compassion of Christ to well up in me and to overflow to those around me? Three quick things that we're going to look at before we end this morning. We need to have a right view of God. We need to have a right view of ourselves. And we need to have a right view of our situation. A right view of God, a right view of ourselves, and a right view of our situation. Look at, look at verse 5 for me. The first one, we need to have a right view of God. Look at, look at how he starts this prayer. Oh God, oh Lord God of heaven. In other words, my God who is supreme and sovereign, the great, the omnipotent, the all-powerful, and awesome, the holy, the righteous and just God who keeps covenant, who is faithful and just and true. And and steadfast love, who keeps steadfast love, who is always loving. But what is so profound about that prayer was there was no immediate evidence of God being those things. There's no immediate evidence of of God being supreme and sovereign and all-powerful and righteous and just and faithful and true and loving. Judah had been exiled to Babylon. And the people are scattered. And the walls have been destroyed. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where your current set of circumstances don't seem to line up to how God has revealed himself? I know you have. We all have been in those situations. But I love how Nehemiah prays. You are faithful. You are good. You have not abandoned us. 
You are here even in the midst of our hurt. You love us and you will keep your promises. Friends, in the midst of those hardships, we are not to deny the reality of the pain and the hardship. We're not to deny the the reality of the overwhelming circumstances that seem to be pressing within us. But in their midst, we need to declare the reality of how we know God has revealed himself. We need to constantly remind ourselves of God's word because it is God's word that needs to shape our understanding of who he is, not our set of circumstances. Second Timothy, my ap- I, 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 I'm I, nervous to say this, but probably my absolute favorite verse in, the, in, the, in, in God's word. And it says, Paul writes in Second Timothy, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. God's, God's purpose of, of having Jesus seated on his throne forever overcame the most overwhelming of obstacles, death itself. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ descendant or descended from David. God's promise to have, have, a, have someone who was descended from David on the throne overcame the most overwhelming circumstances of rebellious king after rebellious king after rebellious king. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. What is God's promise and purpose over you? Are they facing overwhelming circumstances and overwhelming obstacles? My word, my encouragement to you is remember Jesus Christ. Have a right view of who God is. When Jesus was faced with the overwhelming situation of thousands of people before him, and all he had to feed them was five fish and two loaves, you know what he did? As impossible as that situation seemed, Jesus took those five fish and two loaves, and he gave thanks. And sometimes I think we want too much of the, of the tangible reality of the fullness of God's promise before we are willing to give thanks. How much of the promise of God do you need to see before you are willing to give thanks for, God, for the God who is faithful? Remember Jesus Christ. How does the compassion of Christ overflow from me to others? Have a right view of God. Secondly, we need to have a right view of ourselves. We're not going to read verses 6 and 7, but, but you can just glance at there or on, on the screen behind me. Verses 6 and 7. Again, look at how Nehemiah prays. He says, I'm praying for the people of Israel. And then he says, Israel has sinned, we have sinned, and I and my father's house have sinned. You see, the endless hard-heartedness and rebellion of the Israelites was what got them into trouble. And the original perpetrators of the sin weren't around to repent. And Nehemiah was willing to take ownership for what previous generations had done. Because he knew that, the lo- that while ever he distanced himself from the reality of what the nation of Israel were going through, it would be impossible for him to have compassion for the people that he's about to lead. He was not afraid to own the mistakes of people from the past. And I want to say, friends, the same is true for us. The more I am convinced that that the reason I am blessed and that the reason that I am living in the favor of God is because I am the author and perfecter of God's blessing. The the more we believe that, the more we will be hard-hearted to the people around us who are not living in the apparent favor and blessing of God. The more we will think to them, they need to do what I did in order to get themselves out of that situation. And we will never have the compassion of God overflowing into us towards others. 
Can I just make a quick comment about repentance before we move on? Repentance is not something to be feared. And I know there has been some teaching around you know, the last four or five years that actually has, has done a disservice to the Word of God on the subject of, of repentance. Repentance is a beautiful gift. Repentance is, is, set, is, is centered around the love and grace and mercy of God. Repentance, I, I don't know who came up with this definition, but I love it. Repentance is being empowered by God's love in order to destroy the ways of the old self that are destroying you. Repentance is being empowered by God's love in order to destroy the ways of the old self that are destroying you. And because repentance is centered on God's love, there's no need for us to be afraid of repentance or no need for us to be reluctant to take ownership and repent for past generations' mistakes that we are still living in the consequences of right now. When we try to argue away the need for repentance, I would say we've lost sight of God's grace, mercy, and love. And so the second, uh, I forgot to ask you the first question. I apologize. But the first question on your sheets was, what do I believe God has promised me that is still to be fulfilled? The second question that I want to ask you today is, has my compassion for others in any way been diluted because of a wrong view of God's blessing in my life? We're coming into land. How does the compassion of Christ overflow from me to others? Have a right view of God. Secondly, have a right view of yourself. Thirdly, have a right view of my situation. And we're going to land with this. Look at, look at the end of Nehemiah chapter 1 and how, how he lands his prayer to God. In verse 11, he says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy, grant me mercy, grant me favor in the sight of this man. I love, I love his kind of statement of the king of Persia is simply this man. You know why he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not dishonoring the king of Persia. He sees the king of Persia in the light of the king of kings. I love that. I love that. Nehemiah was a visionary. He wasn't just a dreamer. A dreamer dreams about things being different. Nehemiah didn't just pray for God to, to rebuild and restore the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah prayed that God would give him the ability to see those walls rebuilt and established. That's why Nehemiah wasn't a dreamer. Nehemiah was a visionary. Visionaries envision themselves making a difference. And they pray for opportunities to do so. And in that context, I want to suggest every one of you sitting here, to some degree, is a visionary. We need to be praying, God, give me opportunities to change the world around me. When we understand that, it should impact the way we pray. Do you have a vision to see your neighbor or your friend or your work colleague saved? Could I suggest, don't pray, Lord, would you save my neighbor? Could I suggest that you pray, God, would you give me the opportunity to share Jesus with my neighbor? Do you have a desire to see signs, wonders, and miracles around you? Don't pray, God, would you heal the sick? Pray, God, would you give me opportunity to pray for the sick? Do you want to see your work environment changed? Don't pray, God, change my work environment. Pray, God, would you give me the opportunity to be salt and light to those that I work with? Pray for the opportunities, which brings us to the third lesson about vision that I wanted to share. Remember the first vision? Vision starts with a burden or concern. Secondly, vision hardly ever requires 
immediate action. Thirdly, the third pillar about discovering God's vision for our lives. Pray for opportunities and plan, strategize as if you expect God to answer your prayers. So here's my third question. What opportunities do I need to begin praying for that will impact those around me? And what should I do when those prayers are answered? How do we have compassion for others? And how do we allow the compassion of Christ to overflow to others? Have a right view of God. Have a right view of yourself. And have a right view of your situation. And then again, those three questions. And just as I'm about to read those three questions, if I can have the worship team coming up, we're going to end with some worship song and going back into ministry. Those three questions again. How do I view God in the light of any unfulfilled promises? Has my compassion for others in any way been diluted because of a wrong view of God's blessing in my life? And then lastly, what opportunities do I need to begin praying for that will impact those around me? I return back to this little Starbucks illustration, which I hope communicated a point, but the church I have been praying for and longing for and dreaming about and, well, I shouldn't use that word anymore because I'm not a dreamer. I'm a visionary. The, 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 church, the church that I've been envisioned to see, the church that I have passion to see, is a church where every single one of us understand what God's call and purpose and destiny is for our lives. Or we at least might not fully understand it, but we are growing in our understanding of, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which says, I am God's masterpiece. I am God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good, work, good works, which God has prepared in advance for me to do. My prayer for myself, my prayer for you through this series is that we together would discover God's plan and purpose and vision for our lives. But we can't just leave it there. My, my hope, my vision for our church is that we would be a church that that would, yes, each of us know our individual calling and destiny and purpose, but within the context of this local church, we would, we would know what God has called church in the city to. We would know the unique part or aspect of God's glory that we bring to the city. We would know that we, don't, we aren't responsible for bringing the fullness of God's glory to Chicago, but we are responsible for bringing the part of God's glory that God has chosen for us to reveal to the city that we play a part in seeing this city come to know Jesus and that each of you, each of us would know what that part is that we play. But it's not just individual or local church. There is a context of understanding that every one of us play a part in this incredible exiles to heirs, uh, a rescue mission that God is on. From the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve fell, God has been on this incredible rescue mission of bringing people back to himself. And friends, we slot into that right now. Churches in the past and, and people in the past have made awful mistakes that unfortunately we are still living in the reality of right now. And I want us to be a church not afraid to own up to those mistakes. Even though we are not perpetrating them right now, we have a responsibility to repent of them so that we can walk into the fullness of seeing everyone come to know Jesus, come back from being an exile into an heir of an unshakable kingdom. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world 
that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the best verse, I think, that summarizes God's ultimate plan and purpose for this generation, for the nations of the world. Not just this generation, but generations to come. God is rescuing people back to Himself. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City. All of Jesus for everyone.